Welcome to Toil the Week in Health Law, the natural fibre podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on May 16, 2016. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined by... Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. Hi, Frank. Well, this week on Twill, we're pleased to welcome George Annis. Annis is the William Fairfield Warren Distinguished Professor at Boston University and Director of the Center of Health Law, Ethics and Human Rights at BU School of Public Health. He's also a member of the Department of Health Law, Policy and Management at the School of Public Health and a professor at the School of Law and the School of Medicine. Um, For decades, he's been one of the nation's foremost scholarly voices in bioethics and health law. And if you aren't uh, uh, well acquainted with uh, uh, George's uh, work, you are definitely listening to the wrong podcast. So a big welcome to Twill, George. (laughs) Thank you. Happy to be here. Oh, that's great. So I was uh, reading a, a a new piece that you just uh, published in JAMA, or fairly recently published in JAMA with Sandro Galea, on aspirations and strategies for public health. And I thought it might be an interesting way to sort of start our conversation um, because we, we uh, don't always have a clear sense of where clinical health ends and public health begins and public health ends and population health begins. And I thought this piece might be a, a good opportunity for you to kind of explain that to us. Well, it's not, not always all that clear. Uh, but you have to start out with a view that public health is really about populations. It is not about individuals. Uh, obviously, populations are made up of individuals. But when we think of public health and what should be done, by the, what should be looked at by the field of public health, we think of things that can impact and do impact the health of all of us. Uh, clean air, clean water, uh, socioeconomic gradient, uh, education, and mass transportation food supplies. All those things are uh, relevant big issues in public health and are issues that you would not meet at all or seldom in medical care, for example. So the distinction is between public health and medical care, although often, as I say, uh, we like to get doctors involved in public health as well. Um, Certainly the overlap comes, I think, mostly in screening programs where the person isn't sick, the people you're looking at aren't sick, but you're trying trying to locate people who are sick within the, who don't know they're sick, within the great boundaries um, of the population. Is it a fair takeaway from that piece that you consider public health to be underfunded compared to the generous funding of clinical health? Yeah, I don't think that's just a takeaway from that piece. I think everybody knows that. Uh, Depends how you count, but uh, medical care gets between 95 and probably 98% of all the funding uh, compared to public health getting the last five, uh, two to five percent. So uh, the example that uh, that my co-author, Sandra Galea, uses a lot to people's consternation is the so-called personalized uh, medicine initiative. Uh, the idea of you know sequencing everybody's genome and trying to develop a treatment that is uh, aligned with their specific genetic pattern, especially in the area of cancer, but, in, but in, you know, arguably in every disease in the future. And the proponents of that like to say that they're doing public health because they're going to put together a massive public data bank of a million people's genomes and, and their background and try to learn uh, about things that might impact individuals' health. Um, well, we think that's nonsense. That's this is the most. It's called personalized medicine for a reason. It's the most individualistic type of medical care that there is. 
uh, that's being fought for here. And it's the hottest thing there is right now, whether it's in politics, President Obama's uh, proposals to uh, do his personalized medicine initiative, uh, or in at the National Institutes of, of Health and the National Cancer Institute. Uh, this is the hottest thing there is, and it's got nothing to do with public health. Got it. And now I'd like to move our conversation about public health to another piece uh, that you co-authored in uh, New England Journal of Medicine with uh, Wendy Mariner on informed consent in the First Amendment. And sure. I, I think kind of sadly, I guess the transition here again is sort of uh, the law, rather than promoting public health, uh, getting in its way in the context of this Florida law that prohibited doctors from asking about their patients whether they had firearms in the home. And I was wondering if you could describe the intent and purpose of that law and how it became a First Amendment issue. Well, the intent and purpose of that law was actually uh, to, to stop what had actually happened to one of the legislators in Florida where... Her doctor uh, said that he wouldn't take care of her children if she didn't tell him whether uh, he had a, she had a gun in, in the house, uh, which was an overreaction, obviously, on the part of the physician. She said, that's wrong. And then she overreacted and said, I'm going to pass a law. So you can't even ask me whether I have a gun, which, of course, is nonsense. Uh, there's, there's no way that can ultimately stand up because uh, uh, a doctor can ask whatever is medically relevant and, you know, it's a tiny argument, but not much, and it's medically relevant to the health of your children if you have a gun in the house that they might have access to. So that you know that became politicized, but ultimately, as a as a free speech issue, and even as a doctor-patient relation, uh, good medical practice issue, uh, that's that ultimately is is going to be a loser for the people who want to restrict doctors from asking their patients questions. Uh, patients don't have to answer them. And so that, that's another thing, uh, you know, what, what's, a, what's a reasonable answer? I don't think we want to get to the, I certainly don't get the position that if you don't give your doctor the answer that they want, they can throw you out and tell you they're not going to be your doctor. That's, re, that's ridiculous, too. We have, there we need a little common sense on both sides. That is such great uh, context for that uh, controversy, George. And I was also uh, interested in, you all mentioned in the New England Journal of Medicine article, this North Carolina law that required um, the physicians to perform an obstetric real-time view of uh, the unborn uh, child, fetus, etc. And, and essentially the idea there was that people behind the law said, well, women could decide not to look at the ultrasound. They could work their eyes, but the physician must speak. And, and there the court came out in a very different way, sort of more First Amendment protective. And could, could you describe that decision and sort of its implications? Well, I mean, that, that's the question. This has uh, been an attempt over the years by people who want women to reconsider their decision to have an abortion and so I trying to put pressure on them at the at the point of, of care and the pressure was you you have we have to do an ultrasound of your fetus and then the question well that's kind of sounded crazy unless that was part of standard medical practice and it turns out a lot of times it is depending on just so you can find out what the stage of pregnancy is but then the next question was well why are you doing that it's one thing to do the ultrasound for medical care in order to, to make sure you're you're doing the right procedure at the right time. It's another thing to try to dissuade the woman from having the procedure in the first place. So that was the idea of asking the woman to watch it, uh, and even, you know, not in this state, but other states really want to compel you to watch it. Uh, but that seemed to be way, way too going on. But the notion that you should be doing things, medical things, to try to dissuade a woman from making it, from a decision she's already made, 
uh, just strikes me as ridiculous. You know, should you be able to uh, compel a doctor to speak? Uh, no, uh, unless it's something that is intimately related to informed consent and is accurate. In this case, it's neither one, it seems to me. So in the sort of this sad intersection of the culture wars and the First Amendment, the piece that the two of you wrote suggests that there's sort of asymmetry um, here between the Fourth Circuit abortion case with compelled speech and the Eleventh Circuit with prohibited speech. Is is there a difference in the First Amendment or is it the existence of the Second Amendment? I mean, is this an asymmetry that you would expect to be cured in later cases? Uh, I don't want to be too much of an optimist with the court system, but yes, I would expect this to be cured. I would expect the First Amendment uh, to ultimately be found by all, you know, by, by the U.S. Supreme Court to be the determinative factor here. And not that you can't compel doctors to talk and you can't uh, require them, require them not to talk. Got it. And now I'd like to move on a little bit further to uh, our theme today might just be sort of paternalism and anti-paternalism in uh, state patient relations or state um, uh, citizen relations. And the other is, uh, paper from uh, 2013 in the Journal of Medicine, I think is still quite relevant given some controversies on the uh, campaign trail between, uh, I think, Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, is this issue of uh, reducing obesity via limiting sugary drinks. And so your piece uh, described the mayor's uh, portion cap rule from New York back when uh, Bloomberg, a great patron of public health, uh, decided to directly legislate on the public health's behalf. And to try to stop drinks from being sold more, uh, sugary drinks from being sold in containers of more than 16 ounces. I think you very wisely noted in the piece that um, that didn't stop refills, and so therefore that seemed to just defeat the purpose. Do you have other, other thoughts in terms of the effectiveness um, or uh, plausibility of these sort of sugary drink caps or other approaches that could be taken? I mean, you're correct that uh, Wendy and I didn't think this was a very good idea. On the other hand, that was not the thrust of the piece. The thrust of the piece was, uh, who has the authority to make a rule like this? And, and our point was, later upheld by the, uh, by the New York uh, Supreme Court, Court of Appeals, our point was that it was only the city council, the elected officials in the city council that had the authority under the New York Constitution to make a rule like this, that the unelected uh, Board of Health in the city did not have that authority. And that's precisely what the, uh, what the court said, ultimately. Uh, the second question is, okay, what should you do about obesity? Is it, does this, this idea make sense? And I think you know, I'm willing to do almost anything reasonable to try to limit people from uh, these sugary drinks, which are clearly bad for them and clearly do have at least a role uh, in obesity. But arguing that only some stores should not be able to sell uh, sugary drinks in large proportions, in large containers, uh, really didn't make any sense. As long as the store next door could do it, or as long as you could buy two or three of them uh, at the same time. So that was, doesn't seem to me, it seemed to be a, a sensible idea to attack diabetes uh, and obesity, but not, not a good way to go. That we should attack it, but this is not the way to do it. Yeah, I did see that you mentioned taxation as well, and I thought that was a really interesting alternative and in bringing up this really difficult issue, which is that, you know, if you directly want to discourage a behavior, taxation seems to be the most direct way. And also, even as we saw in the NFIB versus Sibelius, you know, a very <laughs> broad powers of both nationally and on the state and municipality, local level. But on the other hand, it's definitely going to be regressive. And so it seems as though, you know, we need 
need a much broader uh, public health uh, attack on the problem. Absolutely right. I mean, that is the problem with uh, with all kinds of sales taxes. Is they're totally regressive, and uh, and they have a very disproportionate impact on the poor. And you hate that. And you know, you know even in in tobacco, right? I want people to stop smoking. I don't just want uh, you know this to fall on the poor people. So I I thought that we could move into some areas about research. And one particularly large uh, question mark that's being hanging over um, uh, human research uh, regulation of the last year or more has been the uh, proposed reform of the common rule. And uh, the, the comment period for the NPRM is over. And in the interim, there was a rather interesting analysis from um, the Council on Governmental Relations uh, last week, I think it was, that sort of did a, a, an analysis of all of the comments, and particularly uh, uh, there were many thousands of them, uh, and particularly looked at the, the type of persons who were making the comments, be they researchers or IRBs or individuals or and so on. And they looked at uh, three uh, areas. First of all, the whole biospecimens and the broad consent uh, proposal. Secondly, the IRB waiver tightening. And third, the sort of single IRB issue or proposal. And my rough sense was that they concluded that the broad consent and uh, biospecimen piece was pretty roundly disapproved of as uh, generally uh, leading to a reduction in research. The IRB waiver tightening seemed almost as unpopular, while the single IRB issue seemed to sort of split the commenters uh, a bit. First, I guess, do you agree that those are sort of the, the three big bullets that we should be concentrating on in this space at the moment, and uh, how do you, uh, how would you take us through uh, those three issues, or any other that you have in mind? Yes, I totally agree on the biospecimen as a major problem with the regs. They went off the rail on those uh, by constant. I think again, as we said at the beginning, we were talking about uh, personalized medicine and this giant uh, biobank of a million specimens. They seem to be so focused on that idea. Uh, and how you get consent for that, that they said that biospecimens are to be treated like a, a human person, which of course they're not, they're a biospecimen. Uh, so yes, uh, what our commentary on that was they should just get rid of that, that made no sense. Most other people commented on it that it would be too expensive to get reconsent or to follow people up. I don't think that's an issue. I think that you know, if it's expensive, it's expensive. The question is whether it's worth doing or not. But in terms of the biospecimen issue, I don't think it was. Uh, terms of informed consent, IRB waivers of informed consent, uh, that's problematic. And uh, just the basic way they look at informed consent, I think is problematic too. I think informed consent is really the crux of a patient uh, subject protection here and that anything that weakens that is a, should be opposed. Uh, the single IRB is similar to that as a problem. I mean, uh, uh, yes, the idea is right, but it shouldn't be mandated. It should be up to uh, up to the IRBs involved in the multi-center research protocol whether they think it makes sense for their population, their patient population, their subject population, uh, to to be uh, governed by a central IRB or not. And it, it should not be one size doesn't fit all there. Do you think there's an argument in favor of some kind of broad consent, which is 
quite different from specific informed consent um, in that maybe it has a sort of an educative, symbolic role. I mean, I think back to uh, the uh, the original HIPAA privacy rule where there was that consent that was required at the beginning of a treatment relationship. And everyone knew that, uh, well, the, the rule was clear that uh, uh, if you didn't give consent that you weren't get, going to get treatment. And so everyone was pretty much going to give consent. But at the same time, it sort of signaled here is something important that, that is mine, that is autonomy uh, based that I am giving up and that that was sort of a symbolic kind of moment. Yeah, it's hard to argue against uh, symbolism, but I mean, much more we're interested in things that are real now. I'm not a big fan of HIPAA, I never have been, even though I am a fan of privacy and, and, and patients' rights to decide whether or not to share their medical records. But ultimately, I think we've all seen that we're all going to share our medical records with the healthcare system, and, and it's just the way it's going to be. Yes, and then you know, and to ask you for consent for that, uh, I prefer to say we should give people a notice of what's going to happen to their medical records uh, rather than consent, because consent for me is a powerful term, and it really means I'm making a decision. And when you're put in a position where you're actually not making a decision, you're asked you're asked really to give a waiver of consent rather than consent. I think that uh, that gets very dangerous because it starts patients thinking, well, I don't have any control over any of this, so what the hell does it matter? Just give me the 15 forms to sign. And you literally get 15 forms to sign when you walk in the hospital or, or are taken into the hospital by someone. And, and ultimately, I think it creates a great deal of cynicism among the public that uh, is not good for either the public or for medical care, or in this case, for research. So. Yeah, I'd give people notice notifications of certain things that are going to happen, but I wouldn't call it consent, broad consent or implied consent or anything else. It's not, it's not consent. It's a waiver of consent. I think that is so interesting, George, because, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about the nature of notice and consent in privacy policy generally, um, looking at the GDPR in Europe, uh, looking at potential calls by the Federal Trade Commission for legislation or uh, initiatives that it's uh, putting forward. And I guess uh, your skepticism about consent in this fra in this context leads me to wonder, essentially, do you think that the future of privacy regulation in healthcare is going to be something about use regulation, preventing the use of data, uh, rather than trying to backloading it versus front-loading control? Yes, I think that's definitely where, that's where we're going. I'm not saying that that's where I think we should be going, but... Uh, in way back in 1995, my colleagues and I uh, wrote for the Human Genome Project, wrote a, a proposal for a federal uh, genetic privacy act. And, and one of the things we pointed out is that there are four basic times you can, you can regulate. You can regulate when someone acquires your specimen. You can regulate when someone analyzes your specimen. You can regulate when someone uh, stores your specimen, and then finally you can regulate when someone actually uses your specimen by disclosing the information to someone else. And that's probably the point uh, that, as you, as you say, we're going to wind up spending most of our time on because uh, we're not regulating the collection of DNA samples and we're not regulating really the analysis of them or the, even the storage of them, although we do some regulation there. Uh, the real regulation point is going to be the use and, and who can use them for what purposes and uh, what, when you have a right to say no. 
I do think that makes a lot of sense because especially when we consider the degree to which uh, the framework of rules under the common rule, and I, I think that you know many people who are dealing with sort of the intersection of, say, the common rule, CLIA, HIPAA, uh, state privacy laws, etc., just feel confounded by the complexity. And I guess a lot of folks in the healthcare sector itself feel now that given there's so many health profiles that are out there in, in what Nick uh, calls the HIPAA-free zone, that it seems as if uh, the more the regulatory apparatus is is extended or expanded or complexified in healthcare, the more essentially you're pushing potential analysis of this type of information toward um, the potential wild west of areas that don't have, say, the professional guidelines or ethics that healthcare does. Is that a reasonable analysis, do you think? Yeah, I do. I, I absolutely think that that's, that's reasonable. Uh, we, it's, uh, I mean, medical professions do have, do have a standard of ethics and they do have, we have, can, can stop a lot of leakage. Uh, based on even codes of ethics and, and good practice and confidentiality, but uh, you're right. When once you get outside of that framework, even when you just move up from the doctor to the hospital, it's, it becomes much more difficult to find a uh, any set of, of of rules or ethics that constrains you from sharing information. You take a very uh, strong approach to informed consent and autonomy with regard to the physician-patient relationship. Um, are there times when you are skeptical even about that, however, and the way that informed consent frequently gets reduced to a kind of checklist um, uh, uh, idea run by um, risk managers rather than perhaps the the, 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 the more uh, elevated concept that we had at the beginning? Yeah, sure. It's, not, it's hard to find anything elevated in the current healthcare system, I certainly. But uh, on the other hand, I think uh, informed consent is the core of the doctor-patient relationship. If we don't have that, uh, then you just, you're, you're back to the, uh, to the, uh, the slave doctors in, in Greece who just, you know, the slaves were not permitted to even talk to their doctors, and the doctors didn't talk to them. They just, just treated them. Uh, in whatever way they thought they should be treated without asking them or seeking their advice or counsel. And I think everybody would say that's wrong. Uh, now, we have reduced, unfortunately, in many, many settings, informed consent to a form. And if I you know, tell my medical students uh, another time that informed consent is not a form, I think they get it. Uh, but I don't know why they should, because when they go out and practice, all they see are these forms. Get the patient's signature on this form. And when you reduce informed consent to a form, and it's certainly true in the, in the federal regs on research as well, uh, that's a problem. That's not a solution. That's a problem to doctor-patient communication and to actually patients understanding what their options are and, and making their own decision based on their own values. I mean, I think we all think that that's the goal, but, you know, the more patients doctors have to see every hour, the harder that, that goal is to meet. I understand that. But I think we should continue to fight for that ideal because otherwise it's going to go away. Completely. Yeah, and I'm wondering also about, you know, the nature of informed consent and, you know, this tension between, say, the fiduciary or the ethical obligation and standards of physicians versus the business imperatives that are common in terms of trying to increase the throughput of the number of patients, etc. And one thing that, you know, I think definitely highlights that, and it's something that surprised me in my discussions with practitioners, is this problem of incidental findings. I know that uh, Susan Wolf has been writing a lot about them, and, and others have been, and, you know, and I have 
my intuitive sense is that if you told people, hey, we're going to have your data and biospecimens for uh, research, and hey, guess what? If there are incidental findings, you're going to get to know about them, etc. That would seem to build trust in the system. On the other hand, it seems as though there's lots of folks who say, look, we do not want to be responsible for some sort of duty to warn or other things like that. And it seems like there's a really tricky uh, set of issues there that I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, George. No, I think there are. I mean, I, I used to think that this incidental findings thing was all overhyped, but uh, Susan Wolf has convinced me, and I was wrong about that, that it really is a big problem. Uh, but I think a lot of the problem is what just what you said, that the researchers actually don't do any clinical medicine. They don't know how to do clinical medicine. They've probably never talked to a patient in their lives. Um, and they're the ones that come up with these so-called incidental findings or that you have the, the breast cancer gene or whatever, let's make something up. And uh, they say, well, we shouldn't have to tell the patient that. We don't know the patient. We don't know who the patient is. How do we, we, we wouldn't know how to tell anyway. What do we tell them? And, how do we, and all that's true. So what that tells you is whatever, whatever the rule is, you've got to state it very clearly at, at the outset. You've got to figure out how you're going to actually find this. Uh, one of the things, and this was this was big in the Human Genome Project too, in this in setting up this giant biobank. And initially, the researchers wanted, I think they, they would admit this, uh, wanted the, the subjects just to sign off, so give us your DNA and your and your your medical records, and uh, and then go away, and, and we'll we'll take it from there. I mean, you'll never hear from us again. And President Obama, about four or five weeks ago said he believed that uh, you own your own DNA and that any information anybody gets out of your DNA should be your information and you're entitled to it. And I think he's exactly right. That doesn't answer the question how you do this, but it does answer the question uh, what the rule is. And that should be the rule that uh, any that no one, and this is the old privacy rule, no one should know more about you uh, than you do. <laughs> So if someone has personal information about you, uh, at least if they got it in a professional relationship with you, they should have an obligation to tell you about it. They can't keep it secret because other people may be making decisions about you based on that information, which gives you a right, a right to see it. And uh, even though it's going to be hard, uh, about 15 years ago, my colleague Sherman Elias and I did a, a focus group on uh, what we call generic genetic consent. And we really thought that if you explain to people how many genes there are, how many things we could find, we could find a thousand things about you, uh, and uh, we'll just tell you the important ones, the ones that we think are important, and we'll tell you what those are, like cancer genes, et cetera. That people would say it's fine, but they don't. What people say is, if you have information about me, I want to know about it. <laughs> so so if you, there's no question. The public wants to know. They're not happy with research saying, oh, it's just research information. We don't know what it means. They're not happy with, uh, with the rule that uh, you're never, we're not going to tell anybody, including you, about this. No, the rule they want is, if it's information about me, I at least want the right to see it. And as a general rule, I want that information. And I think we have to design a system that makes this possible. That does make a lot of sense. And, you know, I think that it's it's so interesting when I consider future directions for, say, health law, health policy researchers here, because it seems as though in the NPRM, we have one direction, which is probably going in a direction of ever more complex uh, forms of data segmentation and control. And I'm even thinking about, say, data segmentation for privacy in uh, totally outside the uh, NPRM, but being sort of a watchword of some uh, privacy activists and others in D.C., and yet what I'm hearing from you, George, is something that is very different. It's about sort of creating this virtuous circle of trust and mutual benefit 
that is not about sort of defensively trying to control the flow of information, but is much more about trying to ensure maximal public health benefit, maximal trust, maximal uh, information to all parties involved. And do you think there's a chance for that type of idea to be propagated in the current sort of health policy landscape? Or do you think that's going to be more of a, an academic ideal or something that's going to have to be pursued overseas? <laughs> I hope it's not just going to have to be pursued overseas, but it's certainly possible. Obviously, we're not, we're not in a happy time right now, but we are in a time uh, when we might at least hope to see, although I listen to Nick on this, uh, electronic health records become a reality, although we've been saying that for 25 years, right? And, and then some, obviously, now I think everybody agrees, but tell me if this is true, because uh, I don't keep up on this, that everybody agrees that individuals have a right to see their electronic health record. Is that true? Yes. Okay, that's great. So that's a big step. That's a, because historically that wasn't true at all. Historically, uh, doctors treated the medical record as if it was theirs, and that the last person they ever wanted to see was the patient. So the question, so for me, the, the empirical question is how many patients c care about this? I mean, I think they do, I think they will, if it's easy to access and understand. If it's hard to access and, and even harder to understand, then none of it matters, right? Um, but I'm, I'm actually hopeful that we're, we can move in the direction where it's going to be easy to access and easy to understand and that patients are going to, patients, people, <laughs> Americans, uh, are going to want to be involved, uh, not just in their own medical care, but in their own health care. I think that's right. But I think it also circles back to um, Frank's point about trust. And sure. I, I don't think you can just sort of say trust, <laughs> you know, or trustiness. Um, I think you have to have much tougher limitations uh, on discrimination and other bad uses of this data that we do want to be uh, relatively liquid. As we're recording this today, the EEOC uh, wellness plan uh, final rules were published. And it was good to see there that there'd been a uh, quite a bump up from the uh, protections in the NPRM and the, the final rule really does have some some very strong language with regard to use of data collected through uh, wellness plans and so on. In the short time we've got left, George, uh, let's let's move on to a final topic. And uh, I've been to uh, Boston uh, twice in the uh, your hometown in the last uh, six weeks, and the first time it snowed on me, and the second time I just shivered. So it's it's odd to be talking about summer with you, uh, but I guess if there is to be a a summer of this year it's going to be the summer of zika we seem to have some really nasty elements of a perfect storm we have these stories uh, coming out of venezuela about the uh, the state of uh, hospitals during the uh, the downturn in the economy there and then just to make sure that uh, we give everyone a really good chance of spreading the disease we're going to have the olympics in brazil with thousands of people uh, coming and going we're already seeing through Puerto Rico and the beginnings of stuff in the south of, of our country. So to you, what is the summer or fall of Zika? What are the issues that you're following and that we should pay particular attention to? Well, a couple of things. Uh, Zika is important. There's no question it's important. And, uh, it, but it's not the most important public health issue uh, in the world. And the WHO gets itself all wrapped up by... Uh, uh, you know, its failure in Ebola to identify Ebola as a uh, an international public health emergency and feeling that they might get a miss out if they didn't identify Zika as one. 
immediately. So Zika is important, but it's important, I think, as much as a reflection on poverty and the absence of reproductive rights in major segments of the Brazilian, Brazilian society, Puerto Rican society, all, all around the uh, uh, South America. And it should, obviously it should uh, lead us to try to prevent people from, from getting Zika or from spreading Zika, uh, although mosquitoes do that mostly, not people. But it should also take a look at how our very repressive policies on, uh, on pregnant women and uh, just on gender equality uh, or inequality uh, have led to uh, very serious and unnecessary suffering on the part of, of individuals, especially in this case pregnant women whose fetuses are diagnosed with microcephaly. For me, I take a strong position that they should, they have, number one, have a right to prenatal care, but number two, have a right to decide whether to continue their pregnancies or not. And that uh, the fact they don't is, is a public health tragedy. So I think we're about out of time, but I just wanted to be sure to give you a chance, George, to tell our listeners, what do you think is the biggest public health problem, the three biggest public health problems, either for this year or in the coming five years? Well, the biggest, I mean, another way, for me, another way to say public health is to say social justice. And uh, the biggest public health problem we have uh, is poverty, unless we can can face that. It's not not something we're ever going to solve with a pill or with a a surgical procedure and... uh, we're going to have to uh, uh, solve it best, first of all, with uh, cutting down our giant uh, income inequality in, in every country, not just in our own. You know, that does remind me of a recent uh, conversation I was hearing from Paul Farmer and then with Jim Kim, you know, about the overall outlook. And what's even amazing to me is that, you know, the, the old marmot studies seem to be reconfirmed recently in terms of the uh, correlation between mental health and income, income going down, mental health problems going up. And so I totally uh, see your point, George. I think that's really important, yeah, to really have a laser-like focus on the absolute underlying economic determinants of health um, is that's great. And that was this week's The Week in Health Law. A special thank you to Professor Annis for joining us. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at George J. Annis. Great fun having you with us, George. Thank you. Enjoy it, Dick. Thank you. So we post our show notes at twill.com. If you have a moment, please go to iTunes and rate the show. Uh, I am at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And Frank, where are you? I am at HealthPI on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week. Mm-hmm.